from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, three startups hacking food to fight the climate crisis, a bottled water company takes on water bottles, the circular economy giant you've never heard of, and shipping cold beer without heating the planet. It's a tall cold one this week on 350. It's August 16th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as she does each week from her perch in Midland Park, New Jersey, it's Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Greetings and salutations. Both. I like when I get both of those. That's always a bonus. Um, it's, uh, it's August. Uh, how's your August going? What August? No. <laughs> <laughs> I guess gratifyingly busy. I have all sorts of projects for September. I'm excited about everything that's lining up for that month. And I, I feel like I'm in September already, which is not a good place to be. I, I, in the nature of the journalism business, sort of the nature is to live in the future because you're always planning things. But I, just feel like I'm in the, I feel like I'm after Labor Day already. And that's, that's not a good place to be. Well, you're not just in the uh, journalism business, you're in the conference business. And in the that's conference right. business, we're talking uh, well into next year. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're as I like to say, a bit of a hamster wheel, always working on our next three events. So we're working on uh, Verge 19, which is front and center. Uh, we're working on GreenBiz 20 in February, and we're working a little bit on Circularity 20 coming up next May in Atlanta. So that's, yeah, we're always working in the future, and the minute that uh, Verge 19 is over, we'll be working on Verge 20. So that's the hamster wheel. We just keep, keep pedaling, and the wheel keeps mm-hmm. going around. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, uh, you know, thank you for doing all you're doing to help this really cool event that's coming up called Verge. Well, likewise, Joel. And I, I, the only thing that's bad about this August is I haven't made it up to Bethel Woods. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, this is the weekend to do it if you're going to do it. Because this Bethel Woods is the, uh, is the site of the 1969 Woodstock Music and Arts Festival. And this weekend is the 50th anniversary. Dun, 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 50. Wow, that is quite a milestone. I was not there. I don't think you were there either, but you have a great interest in this particular festival. Why is that, Joel? I do. Well, in 1988, 31 years ago, I conducted an oral history of the Woodstock Festival. Did, uh, I don't know, 60 or 70 interviews with producers, performers, doctors, cops, neighbors, shopkeepers, kids in the audience, and a bunch of others. And it came out in 1989 for the 20th anniversary of Woodstock as a book and audio doc. And um, I'm uh, every 10 years, I sort of keep living with that. And this year being the 50th, there's a lot going on uh, for this weekend's anniversary. And my interviews and uh, as well as me personally are part of two, count them, two uh, documentaries that are airing on television, one on PBS, uh, it's the public broadcasting system for those of you outside these United States, and uh, CNN, which needs no introduction. I was doing a, also a documentary on Woodstock this weekend, so I have been living that, and uh, I have to say this, I think, 
Heather is my last hurrah on, on Woodstock because I don't think uh, anyone's really going to care about the 55th or possibly even the 60th. So I, I'm, I'm, I kind of feel that after this, my Woodstock uh, chapter is going to be done, but it's been a great ride. And so I wrote a couple things. Uh, I wrote a piece this week sort of connecting Woodstock to what I do now or what I've done pretty much for those same 30 years um, in sustainability and uh, linked to a piece I wrote 10 years ago for the 40th anniversary called My Search for the Woodstock Baby. It turns out there is none, but I had sort of an adventure looking for her and she turns out doesn't exist. And then we ran this really cool piece. Uh, I was just tickled by uh, my friend, our great contributor, Bob Langert, uh, former head of sustainability for decades at McDonald's called the lessons for a corporate suit. That was his term uh, from Woodstock. And um, Bob, who's a few years younger than me, did not go to Woodstock. I was 17 that year. Uh, he was 13. Uh, but he uh, was impacted by that. And, um, you know, if you know Bob, and I know you do, Heather, you know, Bob is, you know, just the sweetest, nicest, straightest, Midwestern gentleman. Uh, did I mention he worked for McDonald's for 30 years? And, um, you know, it's sort of f fun that the people who, turns out, were impacted by Woodstock. And uh, he writes this really great piece about how it impacted him. And I, what I took away from both your piece and his piece, Joel, was the spirit of the, the planning that went into the festival and how that sort of spirit and camaraderie and leave no trace um, you know, mentality was the same. So I just, I, I, I didn't, I never really thought to connect the dots before, but I just, like I said, I think of the spirit of Woodstock is something that many sustainability professionals channel every single day. Yeah, it, there was a lot. I mean, it should have been a disaster. And I wrote a whole thing about why the festival should have been a disaster. Yeah, and the reason it wasn't a disaster really do offer lessons uh, for us in sustainability around resilience and around coming together and uh, collaboration um, around being uh, flexible and running rolling with the, the changing situations as we now see as as for example as a lot of our climate issues become more acute more quickly than anybody expected and, um, and really just the power of community, which uh, really was uh, struck me as I did all these interviews, and the people who did not know each other, who came together and found themselves in this challenging situation with, uh, you know, the rain and the mud and the lack of infrastructure and the lack of food and, and uh, heat and humidity of the East Coast and all of that, and easily could have been fights or riots or worse and um, and easily could have been more injuries and potential deaths that you have when you put even uh, actuarially when you put 400,000 people together for three or four days. And uh, the way people came together and the, the really ingenuity and innovation that was used uh, in social encounters as well as just designing the whole thing. And, and, and it's really important to note, as I did, that Woodstock happened eight months before the first Earth Day in 1970. And so we were sort of on the cusp of the modern environmental movement, which means that there were things going on in the world that were already concerning 
uh, a lot of people. The EPA was just about to be signed into existence by uh, President Nixon. And um, so it was just an interesting time as, as it relates to where we are now and who we are now. Yeah. Hey, did you see that Washington Post story this week on the temperature rises around the United States and which states were kind of most impacted? Did you? I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, this, is that the one with the interactive map where you can sort of look at, at, at your own? Yep. Yeah. Um, well, guess whose state was number two? I'm guessing it starts with <laughs> new and ends in Jersey. It, it's yes, and indeed the whole anecdote, Lake Hapatcong, um, they they used to talk about sort of the the social and economic impact of of these temperature changes is is quite near me. So I I, I read that story with with. Morbid interest, uh, fast, I don't know, fascination is the right word, horror, um, but I just, it was really, what a great piece of journalism, I mean, just super um, interesting and, and intriguing. Rhode Island was the was the, uh, the one, one ahead of New Jersey, which is, um, nor- in the Northeast did not fare well, so I just, I encourage um, those of you out there listening to, to pop over to the post and read it, because it's just a I said a wonderful recap of exactly where and how climate change is affecting these United States. And and there was also and I'm not sure if it's the same piece or a different piece. In fact, it might have been in the New York Times. I've, I always get confused about where I see things that showed how temperature changes even in the same city, and they and they show maps for Washington and Baltimore and uh, and a few other cities around the U.S. Uh, how the uh, temperature. Uh, varies within a city and how it often is disproportionately higher in lower income areas. Another sort of climate justice issue where those at the, who are least able to tolerate some of the challenges of, uh, of our environmental uh, challenges find themselves most impacted by them. And that's interesting too, is that, you know, just uh, because uh, it's hotter in the city doesn't mean it's hotter for everyone. In Washington, D.C., if you live near Rock Creek Park, which is this big green belt that runs uh, north-south through the city, um, you have a lot, a lot, maybe 5 or 10 degrees lower temperature than you do if you live in, in, in other parts, say, in northeast, where you don't have all that green space. So that's just another interesting part of this, as, we, as this stuff starts to get realer and realer every quarter, really. And speaking of realer and realer, let's get back to the reality of the Week in Review. like to start us off, Joel, by talking about beer. <laughs> that would be appropriate. It's, uh, yeah, ho- yeah, hotter, it's hot. hotter in hell, so let's get into it. <laughs> so we have a, a terrific uh, interview this week uh, by Katie Fehrenbacher, our transportation analyst and senior writer, and it's with Ingrid D. Reich, Vice President of Procurement and Sustainability for beer giant Anheuser-Busch. So what's intriguing about what uh, AB InBev is, is I think the sort of shortened vernacular for that company, they have made a huge investment in hydrogen-powered zero-emission semi-trucks, 800 of them to be exact, from a company called Nikola Motor. And so they're trying to basically uh, spread the wealth, if you will, across their transportation network in terms of how they invest in zero emissions or low emissions vehicles. And this is one of the bigger investments. Um, it's a great new company uh, that was actually one of the people over there that we, we've been following closely is, is a former 
uh, Walmart executive. So definitely someone that understands the fleet needs of big companies. But it's a great, it's a great interview. Um, I, I love this vivid image of her riding into uh, a conference uh, pulled by <laughs> the Budweiser Clydesdale horses. I guess they get a lot of mileage, if you will, out of uh, using them for announcements. But uh, it's a really great interview. Yeah, and this is interesting, and it's part of Anheuser-Busch's goal to cut its carbon dioxide emissions by a quarter across its supply chain over the next five years, by 2025. And about 10% of that footprint comes from transportation. So I, what I liked about that is that Ingrid told Katie about how they think about transportation um, and, and the different parts of it that they go through. So there's mode switch is one aspect of it where they ensure that at every point in time, they're utilizing the most efficient way that of transportation in, in their network. And if, and if, it, if it, they're not, they, they switch it. And so it's optimal mix between rail, trucking, intermodal, which is a mix of rail and trucking. And, and, um, and so that's part of it. And then there's the route optimization piece, which isn't new. Companies have been doing that for a long time, but, but uh, ways to reduce mileage and, and emissions that also happens to uh, uh, just be more efficient in terms of time and deliveries and probably the freshness of the product and a number of things. And at the same time, also cutting, if not eliminating, the empty miles or backhaul miles so that there's trucks aren't running around with with nothing in them. And and talks about some of the technologies they're using, something called Transfix, something called Convoy, something called Smart Hop. And so it's a really great look uh, at how a company that is a, a big player in transportation, they say they have about a million shipments every year, and that's just in their tier one network, the big long haul trucks that mostly move beer from breweries to wholesalers. Um, and then they have uh, probably uh, another massive amount in sort of the from warehouses to customers. So that it's really it's a big logistic transportation challenge. And I love the way this this is all framed. I wonder if they count the horses as well. Well, they didn't, they didn't get into the hoof print here, so no. I'm not sure. There, there was one thing in this story that really jumped out at me. I'm, I, as you know, I'm a tech geek, so I love that part of the the issue as well. But there was a really um, interesting point made by her about policies at the state level for weight of trucks, and I it was something I hadn't thought about before, but the. The general notion is that if you think about an electric truck or a hydrogen truck, they've got batteries in them. So that means the, the vehicle itself is heavier. And if you put the same amount of beer on it as, as a, a regular semi, you're going you're gonna to possibly blow away some weight requirements. So there's a, that's like another example of how the policies uh, you know, for transportation and for many other things are sometimes behind the times, if you will, and that they need to be addressed in order to if not incent these new transportation modes, but you know, at least enable them to, to compete on a sort of a fair ground. So I just thought that was pretty cool. So you're talking about the weight of the vehicle that's allowable on a given highway because yeah. states have yeah. limits to that, just I guess to protect mm -hmm. the roads and maybe to protect other drivers. That's an interesting yeah. part of that. So I, I guess they, 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 they can, it must be a trade-off too, that they can ship less beer per truck. Yeah, I mean it's it's fascinating. I mean that just I it was something I'd never thought about before, and I, I it was definitely one of those aha gotcha type things that um, you know can 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 keep something from from going more mainstream. So, just a good point. 
So let's switch from beverages to food. We had a piece this week by Taylor Flores, who's a customer success coordinator, senior customer success co coordinator at Greenbiz Group, and not part of the editorial team. Uh, but we always love when some of our uh, other staff, um, particularly young and up-and-coming uh, professionals, as Taylor is, write for us. And this is just a great piece that Taylor wrote called Three Startups Hacking Food to Fight the Climate Crisis. And she profiles... Uh, uh, three companies that are sort of tech-y uh, in uh, this is based out of a conference that she went to here in the Bay Area called the Sustainable Food and Agriculture Festival, which was showcasing some of the promising and innovative startups in in food industry and sustainability. So uh, it, it's a it's a great read. There's a company called Miyoko, which is uh, up in north in, of here in Sonoma, California. It's a vegan dairy company, produces vegan cheeses and butters and using traditional creamery cultures. And, a, and another company called Igzu, I guess is how you pronounce it, down uh, a little bit south of here in Palo Alto with the world's first ready-to-drink bamboo leaf tea uh, created uh, with sustainability in mind. So uh, great, great piece from Taylor. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go and I'm going to look into Ulala, which is a startup that creates, quote, purple sweet potato energy cups, end quote. So it's kind of a yogurt alternative. Um, and I, I, I have to say, I found this particular story um, intriguing because I'm facing some diet changes in my own future. And I've been looking at the vegan lifestyle and, um, and, and cutting out dairy and so forth, which is kind of horrifying to me because I love cheese and butter and milk and everything. And um, I don't know if you know this, Joel, but um, uh, Taylor is vegan. And so I loved her informed point of view on this. She looks closely at these alternatives and she's got a she's got a very informed point of view purple sweet potato energy cups <laughs> um cool i mean i was first i was thinking purple yogurt but then we have blueberry yogurts that's purple yogurt already or blue or whatever but um that's great i mean this the food industry is just uh, going in so many different directions and and um, some of those be, remain niche um i don't know whether purple sweet potato energy cups will become literally on our lips in the next few years. But uh, obviously, the, the, just watching, and I know you are, this uh, uh, market for meat alternatives, uh, plant-based proteins, um, it's just crazy. And plant-based products, you know, we've seen the burgers, now we're about to see chicken and fish and eggs, and uh, we're already seeing mayonnaise and some other things. Uh, thanks to synthetic biology, it's just really going to be a very different food market and uh, looks, you know, potentially, if it scales, something that's going to have uh, significant benefits for, for us humans as well as the, the planet we live on. So this is a really exciting area. And it just, it's, it's, I'm always tickled when our staff steps up and, and takes advantage of the invitation that we've given them all the time to, hey, write for us sometime. And, uh, and when it's uh, both that and a great read, which it is in this case, uh, I'm really, really happy. So I'm actually going to take us back to the world of transportation, Joel, with our final piece this week. And the, the lovely title is The Circular Economy Giant You've Never Heard Of is Planning a Major Expansion. Um, it comes from Madeline Cuff, and she's the um, business screen, she's with the business screen staff. We, we use lots of her great pieces from UK perspective. And was thrilled to see this piece because I actually had this company, Brambles, on a uh, list of story ideas for us to, to look into. Um, and 
the, this focus is on CHEP, which is the shipping and logistics arm of, of that company. It's an Australian, uh, if you will, logistics and pallet company. Um, and the, the focus of this piece is on how reverse logistics, as we know, is a huge deal, uh, will be part instrumental in getting us to the circular economy that we dream of. And one of the things that intrigued me about this piece is not just, you know, the, the sort of the, the general exploration of of how you do this, um, what needs to happen in reverse, how, you know, where you have to have these things, how, you know, the, the policies and so forth in place to, to enable them. But I was intrigued by the companies that she, that she talks about um, Brambles having interviewed for their own strategy, including Kroger, which, which struck me because they're, lo and behold, they're involved, they're a supermarket in the United States, but they're involved with the loop initiative. They're one of the, the few, well, I think the only retail partner, if you will, with um, TerraCycle on the Loop initiative. So clearly Kroger and its Walgreens uh, drugstore network are looking very closely at this issue of taking products back and, and encircling them back into uh, some, some aspect of a, a looped economy. So I don't know, it was a great piece. I think every person should be reading this because Reverse logistics is that 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 big thorny um, you know problem that that is so instrumental in in solving the circular equation. Yeah, and Brambles is a is a massive uh, supply chain logistics company that's in sixty countries, and one of the things that they've been uh, known for is uh, reusable pallets. Now, these shipping pallets, which are these things, I think most people know what a pallet is, mostly made of wood, which uh, tend to be disposable because there's nothing, they're just hard to recycle or they're hard to move around um, and, and get much value out of it. And they break all the time. Is they, Brambles has these distinctive blue pallets, uh, which are, uh, uh, and, and, and boxes and crates and other things. So they've been part of reusable uh, shipping and, and, and the logistics equipment. And uh, looking at, you know, how do you use things like that in totes and, and other technologies or containers uh, to get things back, whether it's uh, uh, recycled materials or products that need to be just taken off the market um, or because nobody wants them anymore, but they're too good to go into a landfill and have value or, or maybe even things like food waste, uh, which I guess is, falls into that category of things with value that are, would otherwise go into landfills. So this is, um, uh, you know, part of their zero waste uh, world commitment, as they call it. And it's very much uh, a part of their business now. It's not simply a CSR kind of thing. This is really a behind-the-scenes hidden part of, of both the transportation world and the circular economy. And I'm really excited that we are able to bring you some of these companies uh, that are, are behind the scenes, you know, making this stuff possible. The saying goes that necessity is the mother of invention, and that seems to be the case for Organic Valley, the U.S. dairy cooperative, which just announced it will be powered by 100% clean energy, thanks to a series of community solar deals that it helped spearhead through municipal utilities. Organic Valley created a rather unique model to reach those goals. Sarah Golden, GreenBiz Senior Energy Analyst and Chair of Verge Energy, recently spoke with two individuals involved with the unique arrangement. Stanley Minnick, Organic Valley's Energy Services and Technology Manager, 
and Darcy Scheiber-Knowles, the Senior Quality, Sustainability, and Innovation Manager at Dr. Bronner's. Sarah, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Thanks. It's great to be here. I've been following the Organic Valley story for some time. What really stands out for you about the structure of how the co-op is meeting its goals? Well, the model that Organic Valley used to procure this clean energy different from any that I've ever heard of. And the way that it came about is because this company faced a lot of limitations on what it could do. As you mentioned, it's a co-op, so it didn't qualify for traditional tax credits the way other companies would if they were building on-site solar. And they also looked at uh, potentially a power purchase agreement, which is one of the most common ways that corporates are able to procure clean energy. And that didn't really work because of some regulatory challenges in Wisconsin, which would have made it so they would have had to do a couple extra steps and it just didn't quite pencil. So here's Stanley, and he's able to talk a little bit more about the company's priorities and how they came upon this structure. We really needed a way that we could work within the, the limitations that were in front of us. Um, and then rather than you know, just seeking kind of a commodity wreck or, or something of that nature, we wanted to make sure that our investment was going to contribute to more projects. And uh, another requirement was that they you know, happen near our headquarters and facilities or, or preferably at one of them or, or more. So um, we had a lot of boxes to check. I think the biggest reason we came um, to this kind of a model is that we needed to in order to, to be able to make the change that we wanted. So can you give me a little bit more information, sort of the backstory, if you will, on how the model is structured? Let's, let's dive into this a little bit more deeply. Yes. Yeah, so Organic Valley Municipal Utility, which is um, part of this group of municipal utilities in the Midwest, and they asked their municipal uh, utility for more options for solar. They asked their utility, can you put up more community solar? As a municipal utility, they were really required to keep prices as low as possible for all of their rural customers. That's really their primary purpose, to be brokering these energy deals. And so what Organic Valley did was buy the renewable energy certificate from the utility for the solar they were creating. And so that allowed everybody that was being served by this municipal utility to have access to the solar. And then Organic Valley was helping keep the prices low by buying that REC off of the municipal utility directly. So when Organic Valley went to the municipal utility and asked who would be interested, what communities might be interested in solar energy, they ended up getting a lot more interest than they thought they would. They ended up having about 10 different communities wanting access to solar, which then created a new problem because the demand for the new solar project outstripped the company's rec requirements. Here's Stanley talking about what he did about that. Once we had the communities engaged, we realized that we couldn't possibly support through rec purchases all of these projects. Then we went about the task of helping our partners at One Energy find partners um, to fill in a similar role as ourselves. And that's where the city of Madison, Dr. Bronner's, you know, Native Energy is a company that brought Cliff Bar and, and others into the, into the mix. So without any one of those partners also serving a similar role as us, 
none of the projects would have penciled out financially. So I would call it like hyper additionality if, if someone, uh, you know, asked me to put a term to it because uh, it was kind of an all or nothing. And in fact, I remember the PowerPoint deck said like swing for the fences approach because initially we were going to go for a base hit. We were going to get one project and then we were going to build. And it turned out that that wasn't going to work. Like we had to go for it all or we weren't going to get anything. So it's intriguing to me that Organic Valley basically went out and found some buddies <laughs> to help pick up some of the wrecks. Where do we go from here? Is this something that, that other companies could, could replicate? Yeah, that's one of the things I really like about this story because it seems like it's a creative model that shows how companies can be working with all of these different players, including other companies, municipalities, the city, and then, of course, their utility and so uh, one of the partners in this field, Dr. Bronner, that is the opportunity to speak to a spokesperson over there. And she shared how this is really something that can be emulated again. I think this is just such an exciting model for disrupting agriculture and energy. This shouldn't be a one-off. This model of community-supported solar can be replicated. And I hope it is. Last week here at GreenBiz, we had a brown bag luncheon hosted by Carbon 180, a nonprofit, a neighbor of ours here in downtown Oakland, uh, looking at carbon removal, which, of course, is also the topic of our Verge Carbon Conference coming up in October. And I'm sitting here now with Dory Mausner, who uh, through last week uh, was the director of Carbon Tech Labs at C180, Carbon 180, and uh, is since moving on to presumably bigger and better things. Um, but I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about what you've been doing. First of all, welcome, Dory. Thank you. Glad to be here. So first of all, what is Carbon Tech Labs within Carbon 180? Carbon 180 is approaching the topic of carbon removal from a systems perspective. We need good policy, we need good business, and we need good research to back all of that up. I'm in our business division. Carbon Tech Labs is our startup business accelerator. Of course, we know that we need good policy and good research to back good businesses. And our purpose here is to make sure that those businesses thrive in all of those contexts. So uh, you're working with the business community to basically turn this into an economic opportunity. Can you give us some examples of some of the opportunities that you're or sort of here sooner than later? Absolutely. So the top level line item to keep in mind is that many of the products we interact with today are made from petroleum and tr petroleum is carbon based. And we already have plenty, more than enough carbon in our atmosphere. So the basic principle of carbon tech is we're pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and changing the narrative from it being a liability to it being an asset. And so products that are made from carbon dioxide pulled from the atmosphere can include anything that's made from carbon today. So in essence, we're talking about huge commodities like cement, but we're also talking about plastics. And we're also talking about chemicals and all sorts of additives that you'll find in your cosmetic products and throughout your home. And of course, the built environment has many other examples. Fuels is a huge category of carbon tech products as well. Many of these are available today, and there are ample startups that are working to scale this sector. So if you want to use carbon... Uh friendly or carbon sequestering cement in a project, um, it's, it's available? Is it cost competitive? Uh, can you uh, get it pretty easily? 
you'll have to seek out the specific companies that are doing it. And it's an awesome opportunity to say, go check out Carbon Cure, for example. That's one of the leaders today that's starting to have partnerships with other major cement manufacturers. And for example, Hawaii now has a partnership to ensure that the streets that they're paving are made with carbon sequestering materials. There are major corporations that are leading the charge. And again, there are many startups that would like to get in on this growing sector, which our research has showed can be a $1 trillion total available to market domestically, $6 trillion globally. So if you spec a carbon sequestering cement in your project and you walk over to the local building permit uh, office in your city, are they going to say, sure? First of all, I assume it has all the tensile strength and all the other qualities that it would pass a building code, but does the the, uh, materials in that cement uh, also, is it sort of a drop-in thing and the building department says, no problem? The carbon tech products that we support have to be better, faster, stronger than their incumbents, and ideally cheaper. And cement is a perfect example of a product that can be better, faster, and stronger if it's utilizing sequestered carbon. One of the challenges at the federal level is that federal policy needs to catch up with these new configurations of cement. And that's why, as I said, Carbon 180 takes a systems approach, and policy is one of our approaches. And we're advocating for better federal policy so that procurement at a federal level can include carbon tech products. At a local level, I would be surprised if, if uh, local builders take um, the same particular perspective as federal. And it, it might be easier to get through your local builders. Yeah, I would imagine that because cities are at the forefront of a lot of this sustainability and resilience and that there's a, a lot of them that would want to be first. But and, and the building codes are all done, I think, at the local level or some maybe some at the state level. That's got to be a challenge, that patchwork quilt of trying to one jurisdiction at a time get these things passed. Is that what uh, part of the role of Carbon 180 or who does that? Carbon 180 is focused on a national level. To be honest, it's above my pay grade to speak to the local building codes. I would need to research that more and learn more about that. I think it addresses, however, this national conversation that we need to have, which is if more people understand that products can be sequestering carbon, they'll bring that into whatever work that they do, whether they're construction workers, whether they're assembly line workers, whether they're procurement specialists for a cosmetics company. So long as we can get the topic of carbon sequestration on on a national level, Level, I think we'll start to see it trickle down into everyday products and services that can be cost competitive and also much better for the environment. Great. Well, thank you for all, all that you've done in helping uh, bring this uh, to the consciousness and, and ultimately to the market. Dvorit Mausner has been the director of Carbon Tech Labs at Carbon 180 and uh, is on to whatever's next. Um, thanks so much for that and good luck going forward. Thank you so much. Great to be here, Joel. January 2018, Coca-Cola pledged to collect and recycle the equivalent of every bottle or can it sells globally by 2030. It's part of the World Without Waste Manifesto. This week, the global beverage giant made several announcements related to the packaging component of its commitments. Those call for it to make 100% of its packaging recyclable by 2025 and to have at least 50% recycled content in all of its primary packaging by 2030. The first product line to get this overhaul is Dasani, the company's water brand. It's actually fitting that Dasani go first since it was the first to use plant bottle, which is a recyclable bottle made partially from plants. Among the specific innovations disclosed this week are something called hybrid bottle, which mixes plant-based renewables and recycled PET, 
Coca-Cola also plans to introduce water in aluminum cans in the Northeast United States this fall. And it's expanding on its pilots with water dispensers, an experiment that encourages people to fill up their own containers in places like universities or corporate campuses or institutional food service organizations. I spoke with Bruce Karras, the Vice President of Environment, Sustainability, Safety, and Technical Information for Coca-Cola, about the new developments. Among the questions I asked was his perspective on which of these new innovations will be the most challenging to pull off. Here is an excerpt with his thoughts. When you look at at the series of innovations, some of these are things that we have done before. So um, lightweighting uh, the the plant bottle, we do lightweighting, and and most beverage companies do that along the way. So that's really just another step in in that journey to use less resin. Um, I think recycled content is something we've all worked on. And I think the, the challenge with, with recycled content is really all of the work on the recycling infrastructure from really bring the material from the consumer's hand through collection, sorting, processing back to get it back into our container. That, that is outside of recy- you know, doing recycled content in a container is not you know, it's something that we can do, but it's getting the material that, that we needed, that the whole industry will need, is, is going to be the challenge. I think there's some hopeful things now that are already happening because of uh, the types of goals that, that different companies are setting. Ours is 50%. And if you look across the board with other beverage companies, they're all looking at content goals. That is in some way setting a demand signal to the broader industry that you know investment will be needed, capacity will need to grow. And I think there's already starting to be some change in the broader supply industry for there. So I think when you look at recycled content, it's not the act of putting the content in the bottle. We can work through that. That's a, a something our our uh, teams do on a on a regular basis. But it's really getting positioned so the supply is good. So I think that's challenging because it's scale, uh, and it's a, it's scale for everybody in the industry. We're all we're all looking at that, and there are a lot of lot of uh, hands touching uh, acquisition of of supply of, of recycled content. So the, the challenging piece there is, think about it, when you have a, a PET container in your hand, we have to now start looking at that as resin, not waste. And that's a fundamental shift that I think is, is starting, and I think it'll continue, and that'll be what helps change things along the way. I think the other other piece, there are some, some areas in our in our announcement that there, we, we just don't know how consumers will respond to it ultimately. I think we have a lot of work to do on packageless delivery. We've got a great start with our freestyle platform, and this PureFill version 2.0 is is an adaptation of some of that technology allowing us to really um, apply that in different situations. But again, we need to see how does the consumer use it, what are the right places to, to do that, what are the right occasions, if, if you would, that, 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 that seems to fit. I think the hybrid bottle, I, I look at that as really a, a step to a future state. So one of the things that we've been thinking about with with uh, the, the hybrid bottle is that in, in the future, imagine a, a condition where we've uh, completed the play on, on plant bottle and we now have a 100% resin that we can apply. So we have a combination of that bottle of recycled material, which means there's less waste going out into uh, the system into our oceans, 
into landfills and there's more being reused again. So that's a good thing. Uh, adding more recycled content uh, really reduces your carbon footprint. That's a big um, reduction there. And having the rest of it being renewable starts to really separate from fossil fuels. And I think that's, that's more of a longer-term future state, but I think this is a good step toward that direction. During our conversation, I also asked Bruce to comment on how Coca-Cola will ally with NGOs and trade groups to work on solutions for sustainable packaging. My question was prompted by the revelation in July that Coca-Cola is no longer a member of the Plastics Industry Association. According to the company's official statement, quote, the Coca-Cola company withdrew earlier this year as a result of positions the organization was taking that were not fully consistent with our commitments and goals, end quote. So here's more from Bruce on what actually transpired. As a, as a company, we have to, to really look at which are the, the associations that are really helping drive directionally where we want to go. So we have organizations like WWF with their resource uh, project is one that uh, is very focused on, on measuring metrics, um, understanding you know how we how we all collectively move this forward. There's the Ocean Conservancy, which we've been a part of, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. These are organizations that I think for us are better aligned at really looking at what are solutions and actions that we can do to really get closer to our goal of this world without waste. I think if we're just looking at something like bans or uh, fighting bans, we're not advancing our, you know, that, that agenda that we've, we've announced in that goal. Finally, I asked Bruce to reflect on one of the biggest challenges that every consumer products company faces in meeting their recycled content goals, how to get consumers to actually bring back or deposit the products, and how to create the loop that will enable more recycled content. Here's what Bruce had to say about that mission. If you look at our announcement, one of the, the small pieces of it is we're putting on, on the Dasani packages the how to recycle label. One of the things that uh, as, a, as a brand you have so many seconds to be able to uh, pass information out to a consumer when they look at the label and that is more of a, a label that's appearing more and more frequently. I think some of our retail customers are uh, really supporting that label, but it gives the consumer something that says here's how here's what you have to do in order to dispose of it. It has things on it for our packages, like put the cap on because of the, the float process. That, that's something that we've always advocated, but we need to clearly communicate some of those things. And that's a little bit more helpful than having a number one, two, three, four. Those don't really tell people what to do. They just tell you what resin it is. Uh, so that's a small thing uh, in, in really changing that. But we're also doing quite a bit of work on the broader infrastructure that is necessary, as I mentioned before, going from the consumer's hand to uh, the you know transfer station to the MRF to processing. There's a need to really align that, that infrastructure better to get the materials that we want in the long term. So we are doing projects with closed-loop partners uh, where we've been part of the fund since its inception, and that's looking at solving pinch points in that infrastructure process. We've been a, one of the charter members of the Recycling Partnership. We continue to um, execute uh, single-stream carts because our, at least the data shows that there are, are many folks that have uh, access to or should have access to carts but aren't using it. It's about, I think, 53% of the people that have access actually use carts. So 
we thought that that would be at least an initial step that starts to get you material uh, and and uh, starts to improve things. We're also doing uh, work with uh, with uh, a number of uh, sort of recycling hubs that we've we've working with our bottlers around the country to work with cities. And I think there's a learning to be had as we go from from community to community. There often the infrastructure is different, the challenges are different. There may or may may not be different. Um, Systems that are already in place, and we have to learn how to interact as a uh, as Coca-Cola with how can we we help solve pinch points that improve movement of material from one to the other. The the good news is, I think, that the two of our most common packages, aluminum and PET, are the two uh, most valuable commodities in the waste stream today. And what we need to do is figure out how to really iron out the, the pinch points and get more material directed uh, where we need it to go to bring it back into our containers. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out Center Stage, another one of our podcasts. It's the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. And while you're checking out stuff, make sure you check out our newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday, five weekly newsletters in all. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. It's all free. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.